The New Testament reading is taken from Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 to 7. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. A while back, I read a book called Betrayed, which is the story about how the daughter of a Jewish family, Judy, came to faith and then led her own parents to Christ as well. But their initial reaction was horror and hostility. Here's her father describing Judy's phone call, telling him uh, that she had turned to Jesus. I've become a believer, she said to me. There was a long silence. What does that mean, Judy? It means I believe in God, I believe the Bible is the word of God, long pause, and I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I was speechless. Other parents might have welcomed that, but they crushed me, those words, because we are Jewish. To mention the name of Jesus is awkward enough, but for any of us to believe that Jesus is the Messiah is to betray our people, to join the enemy, and to desecrate the memory of our ancestors for the last 2,000 years. How could Judy do this to us? I raged within. And stories like that could have been told about the Christians to whom the book of Hebrews was originally written. It wasn't originally a book of the Bible, it was a letter. Uh, You've just kicked off a series in its famous chapter 11, Uh, And it was originally two Jewish Christians who were receiving a similarly hostile reaction to their new faith in Jesus, as Judy found, because their Jewish families and friends would have felt equally betrayed. And as we saw last week, that is one reason why these Jewish Christians, Hebrews was originally written to, were tempted to go back to Judaism. Uh, and to pack in following Jesus. It just would have made things instantly easier with family and friends. And that is one reason we may be tempted to pack in following Jesus or not to start following him at all. The other reason they felt tempted to go back to Judaism was that Judaism was recognized and protected by the Roman government, whereas Christianity wasn't. So it was culturally safer to go back to Judaism. Uh, Just like today, it is now culturally safer not to be a Christian in Britain 
I mean, compared to Christians under the Taliban uh, or in lots of Muslim contexts, we are very safe. But when you're governed by the Equality Act and the pressure it creates to affirm every belief and behavior, it's culturally safer not to be a Christian. So Hebrews was written to keep these Christians back then and us following Jesus. And so before this week's passage, let me lead us in prayer. Father, please would you use this part of your word to strengthen us against temptations to stop following Jesus and to keep us living by faith in him. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Verses will be up on the screen, but if you've got a Bible or a Bible app, uh, do turn to Hebrews 11. And let me remind you of last week's passage from verse 1, which goes like this. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, that is, in the future beyond this life, the conviction of things not seen, invisible realities. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. And the rest of the chapter is a string of Old Testament examples of believers, each each beginning by faith. So by faith, so-and-so did this. By faith, so-and-so did that. To to remind us that um, faith is is not just believing something in our heads. That's as far as it goes. If there's real faith, it does certain things. And this morning, we are going to see three key things that faith does. And here's the first. Faith believes we're acceptable to God through one sacrifice only. Faith believes we're acceptable to God through one sacrifice only. And so it doesn't try to add anything to that sacrifice. So look on to verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. Now that's referring to the, uh, the incident back in uh, Genesis 4, which we heard read about earlier. Uh, let me remind you of it from Genesis 4 verse 1. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. In other words, accepted him and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? If you do well, or you could translate that right, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do right... Sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So what was going on there? Because two people on the surface of it do exactly the same thing. They each bring to God an offering, and yet God accepts only one of them. Why? Well, some say that the problem was the content of Cain's offering, that uh, God doesn't do vegetables. But if you read Exodus to Deuteronomy, you find that he is perfectly happy with vegetable offerings. So that's not right. Others say the problem, uh, it must have been the quality of Cain's offering. You know, it was, it was second-rate salad over here compared to, you know, l- luscious lamb 
over here. But they're reading in second rate. Doesn't say anything about second rate, does it? So that's not it. What it does say is verse 7. This is where God points out the reason. God said to Cain, if you do well, or you can translate that right, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do right, sin is crouching at your door. So on the surface, Cain was doing exactly the same as his brother. Under the surface, everything is wrong. Cain was relating to God wrongly. And his anger showed that. His anger showed he assumed and he expected that God would accept him because he thought he was acceptable, thought he deserved it. Whereas the truth is he didn't and none of us does because the truth is we all approach God as rebellious sinners who deserve his judgment and any hope we have of getting something different from judgment has got to rest on faith that God is merciful as well as just. And I think that's what Hebrews 11.4 is getting at where it says, by faith, Abel offered. It's saying by that kind of faith, by the kind of faith that comes humbly, conscious that it doesn't deserve anything because of its sinfulness, and yet that God is merciful, by that kind of faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. In other words, the key difference between Abel and Cain was not lamb versus vegetables. It was trusting God's mercy rather than trusting myself. I'm acceptable. Why shouldn't he accept me? How offensive if he, if he doesn't. So here's the key question. Why did the writer of Hebrews think that particular Old Testament example spoke to his original readers and their needs? And that's actually the key question to ask throughout this chapter. The danger of this series on chapter 11 is that we just treat it in isolation from the rest of the whole of Hebrews. And we treat it like a chocolate box. And each section, like we're doing this morning, is a different chocolate. So, you know, this morning perhaps it's the two-tone brick, white and dark chocolate for contrast, Cain and Abel. And you pop it into your mouth, you try and suck out a little message for today. The danger is you forget it's part of one big message of the book of Hebrews, the letter as it originally was, written to particular Christians in a particular situation with particular needs. And we've got to try and get back to that before we can apply it to ourselves. So for them, back then, why start with this example to do with acceptable sacrifice versus unacceptable, useless sacrifice? Sacrifice that's going to get you nowhere. We need to remember these Christians were being tempted to pack in following Jesus by going back to Judaism. And their Jewish friends and family uh, would do what the world is always trying to do. It's always trying to minimize the differences between uh, all of the religions in the world, isn't it? Saying you know, the, the, the differences don't matter. Take your pick or none at all. Their Jewish families uh, would have been saying, look, if you come back to Judaism, you won't be losing anything important. You'll still be worshipping the same God. Um, you'll, you'll still have the Bible. In fact, the proper Bible, our bit of it. 
And you'll still have the temple sacrifices to make you acceptable to God. But if you know Hebrews, you know that the whole of the letter gives the lie to the last thing that I said there. Because Hebrews is all about how the Old Testament sacrifices never really dealt with sin, never really paid for the forgiveness that Old Testament believers were receiving because they didn't realize that they were receiving it on the basis of something in the future, that all of those Old Testament sacrifices uh, were pointing forward to, and that is Jesus' death on the cross, the only place where sin was really dealt with, where forgiveness was really paid for, for people before and after the cross. And so for the last three chapters, Hebrews has been saying to its original readers, if you go back to Judaism, you will actually lose everything because you will be walking away from the one sacrifice that can put you right with God and make you acceptable to God to a whole lot of sacrifices which never could, which were never designed to, which are now useless. So it's no surprise, actually, that the first example in chapter 11 is the big issue facing them, sacrifice. And it's about the fact that there are so many sacrifices in the world, like Cain's over here, which do absolutely nothing to change where you stand with God, and that there is only one sacrifice ever uh, that is anything like Abel's, which actually does, namely Jesus' death on the cross. So if you, uh, if you look at other religions, go to Buddhist and Hindu temples, and some of them are just down the street from us now, and countless sacrifices and offerings are being done which make people absolutely no more acceptable to God. Uh, and in their heart of hearts, actually, the people offering them know that. When I've talked to honest and open people in all the other religions, I have met people in quiet despair about where they stand with God. But closer to home, even within Christian circles, I think we often try to offer God things um, in addition to what Jesus did for us on the cross uh, as reasons why he should forgive and accept us. I think for the big things on our consciences, like a divorce or a fraud or an abortion or, or whatever, I think we try to offer him being sorry enough for the past, maybe even punishing ourselves for the past, maybe, maybe even self-harm. I'm sorry enough, and I offer that as, as an additional reason why he should accept me. And, and God wants to say to us, no, I, I want you to believe you are acceptable to me through one sacrifice only and you don't need to add anything to that at all because it was good enough for all sin for all people for all time will you trust me on that so that's the that's what we offer for the big things i think for the repeated things on our consciences i, I don't know it may be you know the way you you regularly uh, fall into anger with your children you know that's a running battle uh, or the failures in the running battle with internet porn or whatever it is. I think we try to offer him being, being better in the future. Do you do that one? That's my bargaining chip. Lord, please keep accepting me. Forgive me because I'm going to do better at this in the future. That's the offering. And what does he say? He says, no, I, I want you to believe 
that you are acceptable to me through one sacrifice only. And you don't have to add anything to that because it was and is good for all sin, for all people, for all time. Will you trust me on that? So that's the first key thing that faith does. It believes we're acceptable to God through one sacrifice only, and so it doesn't try to offer anything else. Nothing else. Okay, second key thing is this. Faith keeps pleasing God knowing that it will be rewarded. Faith keeps pleasing God, knowing that it will be rewarded. Look on to verse five. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, if you were hazy uh, about Cain and Abel, which I wouldn't blame you for, uh, you're probably very foggy indeed about Enoch. Um, What is this about? It's referring to Genesis 5, which traces the family line of Adam through his son Seth and on through what is often called the godly line because you find these little hints that faith lived uh, in each generation of that line, real faith. So let me read from Genesis 5, verse 3. When Adam had lived for 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. Um, Now is not the time to go into the huge ages here, except to say huge ages have also been found in lists of kings from way back when. So some think these numbers are symbolic, although we don't quite understand how they work. Others think they reflect a memory of an early time just after the fall, before God had so drastically reduced human lifespan. And... uh, Uh, I'm not sure uh, what's the right answer. But Genesis 5 verse 4. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years and he had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days that Adam lived were 930 years and he died. When Seth had lived for 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh for 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Seth were 912 years. And he died. And you get that pattern for each in the family line ending, and he died, and he died, and he died, until you get to Enoch. Genesis 5, verse 21. When Enoch had lived for 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah for 300 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not for God took him. In other words, he never died. Uh, God somehow took him straight from this life into the next, into his presence. So now listen to the take on that in Hebrews 11. Verse five. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he wasn't found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, He was commended as having pleased God and without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So that's saying Enoch had faith, not just that God is there, which most people around us do, 
even if they never show up here on a Sunday. But that those who seek relationship with him and seek to please him will be rewarded, which less people believe, don't they? Uh, Most people I uh, talk to believe that actually relationship with God, relating to him, seeking him, uh, wouldn't be a matter of being rewarded. It would be a matter of being robbed, robbed of your fun and of your freedom and, and of the, uh, the ability to, uh, to be your true self and so on. You know, that's, that's the narrative of our culture, isn't it? Um, if you buy into this Christianity stuff, it's bad news for you. But Enoch, he cultivated his relationship with the Lord. He tried to please the Lord day by day because he believed that that would be rewarded that it was worth it. So here's the key question again. Why did the writer of Hebrews think that particular Old Testament example was what his original readers needed to hear? And the answer is because some of them were seriously doubting whether it was worth it carrying on following Jesus. Because after all, where had it got them? Back in Hebrews 10, It says it got them severely disliked and mistreated. It says this, Hebrews 10 verse 32. After you were enlightened, in other words, came to faith in Jesus, God switched on the lights. You saw who Jesus was and what he'd done for you. After that, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison that is, for their faith. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, that is, for their faith. So family, friends, the culture, the state were all making life harder than it had been for them before they had followed Jesus. So, you know, is it really worth carrying on following Jesus? And Enoch's example is there to say yes, because whatever we go through in this life, if we're in relationship with relationship with Jesus one day he will take us to be with him beyond this life not not avoiding physical death like Enoch did but through physical death which thanks to Jesus death and resurrection is is now just the doorway to to heaven nothing to fear nothing to worry about and this is the thing despite the Lord Jesus knowing all the ways that we've sinned all the ways that we are rubbish as Christians On that day, he says to us in one of his parables, doesn't he, that he will say to each one of us who've trusted in him, well done, good and faithful servant. Now just think how much that will mean to you compared to anything positive or negative that anyone says to you in this life. That's the reward. But that's not all of the reward because our relationship with him will continue but without all of the things in this life that are constantly making us wonder whether whether it's worth it so so we will then be without the 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 constant struggle against temptation and sin and and the level of failure and, and frustration that causes us um we will be without the, the loneliness and the discouragement of being the only Christian in your marriage, in your family, in your workplace, whatever it is for you. Uh, we'll be without the discouragement of the world around us, which you know, we're thinking you, you need to hear about Jesus, and yet it doesn't want to hear about Jesus. 
So that's the second key thing that faith does. It keeps pleasing God. It plods on with that, knowing it will be rewarded. Partly here and now, because you know, living for Jesus is better, even if harder. But this is talking about ultimately, uh, beyond this life, the life that Jesus' death and resurrection has opened the door to. And then the final key thing is this. Faith acts on God's warning of judgment and offer of salvation. Faith acts on God's warning of judgment and offer of salvation. On to Hebrews 11 verse 7. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world uh, implicitly and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So that is referring back to Genesis 6 where we're told that in response to sin just spoiling and and wrecking his world, God told Noah he was going to bring the judgment of that flood on the whole known human race of the day but he was going to bring Noah and his family safely through the flood uh, in the ark which he told Noah to build. And you may be wondering, did that really happen? In fact, did any of this? Cain, Abel, Enoch, the flood... Noah, um, is this real or are we just in fairy story land? The best answer to that is the Lord Jesus thought it was real. If you look in the Gospels, you find that he mentions uh, Abel, he mentions Noah and the flood. I take it that is uh, his way of saying these things really happened, these people really existed. Um, and the other thing is, if, if the thought of that flood is hard to stomach, which it, which it should be, you know, we shouldn't take it uh, lightly. I think it's good to remember John Calvin's comment. The wonder is not that there was a flood, but that there has only ever been one. The wonder is not that there was a flood, but that there has only ever been one. I mean, after all, why are we sitting here rather than being swept away? Is our generation any better than that one? Any less deserving of judgment? And yet, by God's mercy, here we still are. So here's the key question again. Why did the writer of Hebrews think Noah's example is tailor-made for the needs of my original uh, readers? And the answer is, they were being tempted to pack in following Jesus by some very visible hard realities like family rejection uh, and cultural danger. And so the writer was thinking, I need to to remind them uh, of bigger invisible realities like God and his judgment and his mercy, as if to say, yes, of course, the visible realities are hard, but that we need to make our commitments on the basis of fundamental invisible realities. And that's what Noah exemplified. Verse 7, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And people must have thought he was mad, mustn't he? You know, Noah, why are you building this ocean-going vessel where, when we are 50 miles from the nearest sea? Um, why are you going on about this flood where, you know, all of the weather records in, in living memory show that the worst thing we've had was, you know, five inches in one day. Um, you know, Noah, climate change has not yet been invented. You know, there are not going to be extreme weather events. 
in the next X thousand years. And haven't you noticed, Noah, that you're just not living normally? Haven't you noticed how imbalanced you are, putting so much effort and energy into this, rather than just normal life? I guess it's just like in a lesser way, people may think that you and I are mad. Not for believing privately in Jesus. If that's all we did, they'd be perfectly happy. It's being public, isn't it? It's actually working together as a group of believers to warn them that there is such a thing as God's judgment, to tell them there is an offer of coming back into a relationship with God, this side of that judgment. But that's what seems mad to them, you know, along with all the time and the energy and the commitment and the money and just the investment, the apparent imbalance in our lives as that we're putting into the life of this church, not just for our sake, but for the sake of them around us. It just seems mad. So one mum of a newly converted student over in Jesmond, the student came to faith earlier in the year, uh, went, went back home for his first um, uh, uni holiday as, as, a, as a Christian, told his family about it, and, and mum said, look, I don't mind you being religious, just don't take it too seriously. And she's speaking for the culture there, isn't she? That's what it's saying. Don't mind you being religious, just don't take it too seriously. Keep quiet, stay private, don't go overboard. But if God and his judgment and the only way of escaping that judgment, if that is all true, can you be anything less than serious about it? So those are the, uh, the three things that faith does in in this early bit of Hebrews. It believes we're acceptable to God through one sacrifice only and it doesn't offer anything else. So that's what faith doesn't do. It keeps pleasing God knowing that it will be rewarded and it acts on God's warning of judgment and offer of salvation and it makes that known publicly. And if doing those things uh, is the first evidence that Hebrews 11 gives of what real faith looks like, then it begins to beg the question, is ours real? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in the Lord Jesus we have a sacrifice that has made us acceptable to you once and for all. And we thank you that in Jesus we are rewarded now by living as we were made to and meant to, however hard this fallen world makes that. And we thank you that we will be fully rewarded by an unspoiled relationship with you and with one another beyond this life. And we thank you that in Jesus we can face judgment as forgiven people uh, and that we have the privilege of being able to help others through the gospel to do the same. And so we pray that you would strengthen our faith to keep doing what we've heard this morning through your word. In Jesus' name, amen.